Well, one of the verses that was just read is verse 12. I want to read it again. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. There's more. There's, there's much more. Ilia, plu. Ilia, buku, plu. Yeah, there's much more. There's much more. So, two years ago, when myself and my family first came here, it may have been the first leadership team meeting. It was one of the first. As we often do, some members of the prayer team came to our, to our leadership team meeting, and they shared with us a passage that they felt that the Lord had pressed upon them to share with us. And it was from Ezekiel chapter 47. And what's going on there is, well, it was, was, year was 575 BC, so about 600 years before Jesus said what we just heard. And the prophet Ezekiel was shown a vision by an angel, and among the things he saw was a vision of a temple. And from the temple was flowing water. A river of water was flowing from the temple. And the angel brought him, and and they stepped into the water, and first he was there ankle deep, and then the angel brought him farther, and then he was knee deep, and then the angel brought him farther, and then he was up to his waist. And then Ezekiel said that he couldn't go any farther. The water was too deep. It could not be crossed. You can't go any farther. Well, 600 years after Ezekiel made that prophecy, and now 2,600 years later, we can hear what he said and we can understand what the vision meant because things Jesus told us, he told us that he was the temple. And he also said that out of him would flow rivers of living water. We understand what the, what the imagery meant. Water that you would come and drink. Well, anyways, Ezekiel hit a point where he couldn't go any farther. That's as far as he could go. He could go up to his waist and he said, no one can go any farther. That's as far as we can go right now. And here Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, there's more. There's much more. More than you can handle right now. So, here's my, here's what I feel. I'm hearing this, reading the Bible. I feel a sense of, um, I feel a sense of discontentment, if I could be honest. Discontentment in myself, if I could say a discontentment um, here for us, 
don't get me wrong. I am so very thankful for the ways that I have seen the Lord work in us, among us, through us. I'm so thankful for the stories that I hear, the, the baptisms, salvations we've had, the way that the Lord has been providing for us, caring for us. I'm so thankful. But at the same time, a sense of discontentment stirs inside of me when I read the Bible, when I study history, and when I look around. I read the Bible, I see Jesus saying, there's much more, there's much more than you can handle. Um, I read the Bible, I see the expectation that Jesus has laid out. And I suppose I'll get to that a little later, but the, ex the, the, the expectation is one of being, I'll just tell you now, we're not just going to walk up to our waist. We're going under. Um, the word baptized means submerged. One who is coming who will submerge us in the spirit. That's what, that's what they were told back then. And the way this is equated in the New Testament is you will be clothed with power from on high. And today we'll discuss a little bit what that means, what that means internally. What does it mean to be submerged in the water of the spirit? Are we? Um, is this something that, that we can look around and say it's happening here? Well, I read the Bible, and I do notice some differences. Um, every city that the disciples went to was turned upside down. That's something you read. I think it's Acts chapter 17. These people, every city, every city has been turned upside down. And what it was, was it was the talk of the city. Um, the, the testimony of the resurrection and the things that were taking place in the people, in the church, everyone was talking about it. That's what you read in the New Testament. And that's not isolated to New Testament times. I've been talking with you lately, and I have to believe it's what the Lord has put on my heart. It's not just a, a fascination of mine, but I've been discussing with you periods in history where the church has been awakened in special ways. This is a fact of history. In fact, let me just read to you something that I read this morning from history.com. So this isn't some sort of like religious publication. It's a history channel. It's talking about the awakening that happened in the 1700s, known as the Great Awakening. It says, in the 1700s, a European philosophical movement known as the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, was making its way across the Atlantic Ocean to the colonies. Enlightenment thinkers emphasized the scientific and logical view of the world while downplaying religion. In many ways, religion was becoming more formal and less personal during this time, which led to lower church attendance. Christians were feeling complacent with their methods of worship, and some were disillusioned with how wealth and rationalism were dominating the culture. 
Doesn't it just sound so familiar? Religion has become impersonal, formal, complacent. The dominant ideas of the culture had made uh, religion seem insignificant and pointless. It sounds a lot like the world we live in. Yet this was right before a great awakening of the church. And not just one church, not just one city. It spread all over the, the new world. And this is not isolated to just the 1700s, the Great Awakening. We discussed recently the story of what was known as the Jesus people in the 60s, late 60s and the early 70s, where the countercultural youth, the hippies, who would ever expect young people, countercultural young people, to be interested in religion, in Jesus, Yet that's what happened by the thousands. They were getting baptized. And something that makes these periods of awakening unique is it's not just something happening in the church. Everyone's talking about it. I showed you it was on the cover of Time magazine called The Jesus Revolution, where it becomes a phenomenon that people outside the church are looking at and saying something is going on. That's what happened in the beginning. That's what happened during these times of awakening. And here's my, where my discontentment comes in. If I was to go for a stroll, and I dare you to do it, and run into a random person and say to them, hey, have you heard of the things that the Lord has been doing in this city? I fear that they would look at me like, what are you talking about? I suspect they would probably say, I don't know what you're talking about. And that is where my discontentment comes in because that seems to be so far from the heart of God. Hallow be your name, as in make yourself known. My discontentment comes in when I feel like we're living in a land where he is not known. His character is not known. And that should grieve us. Even as I'm thankful, even as I know, even as I know that he is at work in our midst, I know it by the ways that I see it. I know it by the ways that I see him alive in our hearts when we gather together. I know he's there, so don't get me wrong. But nevertheless, I believe Jesus. There's so much more. I believe that there's water that's deeper for us to enter into you. I'm going to pray. We're going to, we're going to dive into this passage a little more. Father God, lead me by your spirit. Let me speak only by uh, your spirit's leading, uh, anointing, so that we can all hear from you and not just from a, a rambling man. Let it be your words. Let it be your truth. And give us eyes to see. In your name, Jesus, amen. Okay. Um, we're going to read that verse uh, um, in, in the context. Um, so I'm going to uh, begin in verse 12 again and read five verses. Jesus, I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. 
He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And that belongs, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. Okay, there's more that I can tell you, more than you can handle right now. And then he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he is going to guide you into all truth. Earlier in, uh, this, early, earlier in this passage, he said that, that he's been with you, but he's going to be in you. The spirit of truth is going to be in you. Here is, uh, here is something that needs to be resolved. There is often a great disconnect between the things that we come here and confess, the things that we come here and sing about, and the reality in which we live in, as in what we actually feel. Um, how do I explain it? Um, there's often a disconnect between what's in our minds, in our religious profession, and what's in our hearts, in our experienced reality. And Jesus says, the truth, it's going to live inside you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth is going to live inside you. And what is the truth that the Spirit, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, what is the truth that the Holy Spirit is going to um, allow us to see? And Jesus says it here, the Spirit, when he comes, he's going he's gonna to glorify me. Um, he's going to make known that which, what I have. Um, and you are going to see me. Now, in the context of the disciples, he says, you know, you're not going to see me and then you're going to see me, where he's talking about his resurrection. But this idea that by the Spirit you're going to see me pertains to more than just the disciples, as he had been saying in the whole section since we started reading this section in, in chapter 14. He said, I, I'm going to manifest myself. Whoever believes in me, whoever loves me, I'm going to show myself to him. Not only me, me, my father, the spirit, we're going to make our home in him. We're going to, we're going to show him. There's this idea that you're going to see. You're going to see. So this concept that Jesus is saying to them, there's more to say, but right now you can't handle it. That's what he says. And he keeps going. And as it turns out, the disciples, they don't really, they don't really uh, like to hear that. Um, they're going to say that they understand. And he's going to, in a roundabout, tell them, in a roundabout way, he's going to tell them, no, you, you don't understand. Um, but they, they think they understand. No one wants to feel like, uh, no one wants to feel like they're in the dark. But Jesus is going to tell them that you are in the dark and you guys are all going to leave me alone. We heard Danny read that. You guys are all going to leave me alone. You're going to abandon me. Um, and that's what happened. Peter's, Peter is most known for that, right? For leaving Jesus. But all the disciples did it. They were afraid when Jesus got arrested. They were afraid of suffering the same fate, which is pretty reasonable if you think about it, pretty rational. 
But then everything changed. Everything changed. These same people who were cowardly in their faith suddenly became quite vocal. And that's what turned every city upside down. They started speaking and speaking and speaking, and no one could silence them, even under threats of persecution and death. And even while persecution and death started falling, even as they were being slaughtered one after another, they kept speaking. What changed? One way of saying it is they saw with their eyes Jesus risen from the dead with a new body, with an imperishable body, a body that would never decay or die. Sat down with Jesus. They ate with him. Jesus said, get me some food. I want to eat with you to show you I'm not a ghost. Touch my skin. I'm not a ghost. Ghosts don't have bodies. I have a body. They saw and they felt the resurrection. And I have just been thinking about this as I walk through my life with troubles and concerns and things that I worry about, worldly things. I'm so aware of the fact that if I could see Jesus, if I could see him in his resurrected body, I wouldn't be afraid of anything. That would, that would change everything. If only I could see. If only I could see him. I would understand that nothing else matters other than being with him and having one of those, having one of those bodies. Nothing else that I chase after could ever compare with being with him with a body that will never perish. And they got to see that. The disciples got to see that. They, they got to see it. So I, it feels a little unfair to me when I first consider it. Like, well, of course they were willing to go and turn the world upside down because they got to see it. And And not only that, after seeing the resurrection, their faith was so strong that there were signs and wonders and miracles taking place in their midst. You see, you read the scriptures and these things, signs, wonders, miracles, they're often accompanied, they, they often flow through great faith. You know, it's the faith that says, get up and walk, which will lead a man to get up and walk and I've actually said to someone in a wheelchair, get up and walk, and he didn't. That happened to me once. No, for real, in front of a lot of people. And I can, I can really tell you why. As much as I wanted to believe, I didn't have the faith to do that. I didn't have that kind of seen faith. My faith was weak. and wasn't seen as I, as I, as I wish I could see. And here's where I go back to the Bible and I see this idea of seeing the resurrected Jesus. That is what he wants to do for us. And during times that the church has become awakened, 
that's what was going on. There was a sense of seeing happening within the church. If Jesus walked in here with a resurrected body, next week, there would be three times as many people here. I guarantee it. Because every one of you would be telling everyone you knew. You know you would. Why is that not happening as it is? Because I read the Bible and we are supposed to see. We're of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 through 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life." Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The truth of the resurrection, this new body that awaits us, the Spirit whom he has given us, the Spirit of truth, guarantees this to us, testifies that all this is real. So we've been given the Spirit. Now I'm just going to lay out to you how what I see is, is a, a, a difference. We have the Spirit. I know it. I, I, I have fellowship. I, I, I eat with you. I, I sit down with you, pray with you. So many of you I know. I know the Spirit is there. I see a living faith. But dare I say... And I say this for myself as much as anyone else. There's so much more seeing that we could see. There's so much more experiencing that we could experience. Dare I say this, we have the Spirit. Are we yet baptized in the Spirit? Meaning submerged. Meaning simply that. Are we filled to the brim? Have we gone farther, farther than Ezekiel? Are we filled? So much so that we can't help but go out and testify. So much so that signs, wonders, miracles, healings, things of that sort. And I hear about them. Don't get me wrong. I hear about them. But they're happening so much more because our faith is so strong. Because we have eyes of faith that see as in times of awakening. Let's, let's, let's keep reading. Um, Verse 17, at this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then in a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. 
So this is kind of a little bit of bad news for the disciples. It was good news. You're going to have joy. You're going to have great, exceeding joy, surpassing joy. But first, you're going to suffer. And the reason they had to suffer was, well, Jesus was going to die. And with Jesus dying, their hopes died with him, meaning their false hopes, meaning their incorrect views of the kingdom, meaning, if I could say it this way, their idolatrous desires, the things that they longed for, their view of the kingdom, which wasn't God's view. God's view of the kingdom was greater, but they had their hearts set on something happening when Jesus went into Jerusalem, and it wasn't him dying, okay? And we can talk about that another time, but they had their hearts on something else. And as I meditated on this, it occurred to me that sometimes in order for us to see glory, we have to die to what our eyes are currently looking at instead. And as I thought about this, I thought of, of uh, one of the... the one of the people in Genesis, Leah, uh, one of the wives of the patriarch Jacob. And poor Leah, poor Leah, she was, she was hardly loved by her husband. He was only married to her because he was tricked into marrying her. It's, it's a sad story for when you read it through Leah's eyes. She wasn't loved, and she just wanted to be loved by her husband, quite natural, you know quite a normal hope, and she gave birth first to a son, and she named him, uh, first son she named Reuben, which means, um, saw my misery, is what it means, and, he's, and she said, because the Lord has seen my misery and given me a son, and now my husband will love me, because I've given him a son, and it didn't work out the way that she hoped, and uh, sometime later, she gave birth to another Boy, and she named him Simeon, which means uh, one who hears. And she said, the Lord hears that I'm not loved. So he's given me another son, and now my husband will love me. And then she has another son some years later. And she names him Levi, which means attached. And she said to herself, now my husband will be attached to me because I've given him three sons. Apparently, it still didn't work out the way that she hoped. And she conceived and gave birth to another son, and she named this one Judah, which means praise. And this is what she said to herself. This time, I will praise the Lord. As in this time, I'm not going to fall for that trap again. I'm not going to set my heart on things here. Even something as great as the love of my husband, I'm not going to set my heart on that. I'm going to set my heart on what's above, on God. Now I will praise God. Now, this time, I'll praise the Lord. And need I tell you, from this boy, Judah, came the tribe of Judah, came Mary, came Jesus. Through this praise, the unloved Leah became the great, great, how many times great grandmother of Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say, and I think this is what Jesus was telling his disciples. We want to see, we want to see, 
I think we need to be asking ourselves, what are the things that we're currently looking at that maybe we need to turn away from? Um, in order to, as the scriptures might speak of, lifting up our eyes. Um, Let's keep reading. Verse 23. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So he's like, right, thus far you haven't asked me for anything in your name. Meaning the things that you've been asking for are largely for your own agenda. But if you ask for my agenda, then you're going to receive and as I read the scriptures, there really seems to be one thing above all else that he wants us praying for. And I dare wonder, is it the thing that we're praying for above all else? The thing that he wants us praying for the most, as it seems to me, is, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or to say it another way, will not my Father graciously give the Holy Spirit to all who ask? These seem to be connected. This giving of the Spirit, this submerging in the Spirit, and this hallowing of God's name as in people are known. This is how it works. Times of awakening. Something happens in the church. Something unique happens in the church. The church sees in a way that the church had previously not seen. And in seeing, the church is unable to keep quiet. It's as if Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, wandered in here for us all to see. During these times, here Jesus is saying, ask and receive, and I'll do it. Now, you keep reading, and what happens is, and, and, and we heard it all already. It was, it was up on the screen. Um, the, the, um, Jesus says, I've been speaking to you figuratively, and he's not really mean, like, it's not like it's parables, but what he's saying is like, what I'm saying, you don't understand. You will understand what I'm saying, you don't understand. And the disciples, they didn't like hearing that. They're like, what they say to him is, oh, we understand. <laughs> and Jesus responds with, oh, really? Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to abandon me. You're going to be afraid. You're going to show your fear. And... As I say this, as I say that there's so much more for us, there's so much more for us, I fear that there might be a reaction of like, I don't know if I like what you're saying. It seems to be like you're saying that like we're not really seen as we ought. And what I want to say is, yeah, that is what I'm saying. I don't feel like we're seen as we ought. And, and I, I, I'm talking about myself as much as I'm talking about anyone else. How many people outside the church have I spoken to this week about Jesus? Maybe one, okay? Confession time. Maybe one. Why is that? What's happening? Something isn't, I'm not seeing as I ought to see. And, okay. Last verse I'm going to read. Revelation chapter 3. Begin verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of, of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, 
I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now what stands out to me in this is this isn't talking to an individual. This isn't talking to non-believers. This is talking to a church. And he's saying, you guys aren't seeing as you ought. But come to me and I'll anoint your eyes and you'll be able to see. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them. Whatever you ask in my name, you shall have. Beloved, I do feel like the Lord has laid on me what I do feel is the call for us as a church. How much I would love it is if one voice, with one voice, we can say to the Lord, Lord, open our eyes. Lord, help us turn from the things that we've set our mind on and set our heart on, and instead, let us see you. Lord, allow us to see so that we can go out and speak with courage and boldness. Um, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Lord, this is my request. Lord, I pray first for my own heart, that in my own heart your name would be hallowed. As in, in my own heart, I would see you as wondrous, Lord. And in seeing, Lord, I pray it wouldn't be seen ankle deep. It wouldn't be seen knee deep or waist deep. It would be seen in a manner in which I could be submerged in your truth with a full scene of my eyes, Lord, and I pray that for us as well. And Lord, give us now the heart attitude that looks to you. Let us not be like the fools in the book of John who thought that they could already see, Lord. Let us be those who understood that they were blind and looked to you and asked for sight, for ever-increasing sight. And Lord, submerge us with your spirit so that we can't help but testify to the wondrous things we've seen. Lord, we ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. a very full morning. So we only have time for one Q&A question. If you're a parent this morning, um, we invite you to take this time to go and uh, get your kids and welcome them into this gathering here. So our question for you this morning, Charlie, is, isn't what happened in Acts descriptive of what the first apostles did to start the church and not necessarily prescriptive for us? Can you show in the epistles where Paul, Peter, or James instructs the church to do what the apostles did? That's a wondrous question. Um, So 
it's a very good question, and it's a point that many have said. The wondrous things that happen in the book of Acts was, the, the question is, were those things just describing the early church, and we shouldn't read them and say to ourselves, hey, I want that to happen here. It's instead just to encourage us of like those things that happen. And I can tell you really easily that that is not a, a, only a description, but it's rather a prescription, and you see it in the opening words of the very book of Acts. Namely, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's probably familiar if you've been here, because I'll speak of it often. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and that's all the book of Acts, and to the ends of the earth. The promise of power is a continual promise. The receiving of the Holy Spirit is also spoken of as being clothed with power, and it's a promise unto the ends of the earth. The immediate audience in the book of Acts never made it to Montreal, yet here we are with the same promise. Um, Good question.